0: Oh, it's so good to be here. I'm Andrea, and and the first time I was on this platform, I was a sophomore in college. I'm not going to tell you how long ago that was. Suffice it to say, it was before skinny jeans, which is not necessarily a bad thing either. But I was a sophomore, and uh, I stood up here, and I shared the story about the miracle that God did in my life. And because God has a sense of humor, here I am this week, and we're spending the next couple of days unpacking five of Jesus' miracles in his Gospels. We're looking at those together. It was interesting because over Christmas break, I was at my parents' house, and my mom and dad found this ancient video footage, you guessed it, of me speaking in chapel that day, and they wanted my kids to see it. So they gathered us all. My kids were like, Mom, you look so different. Uh, It's funny because I think there might be a picture of my family. That's us watching the video footage. And then I've got a picture of my family. My oldest son, um, Micah, he saw a picture of me not that long ago. And he said to me, Mom, you look so different. And I said, well, uh, how do I look different? Don't ask that question unless you actually want to hear the answer. You can tell he's like trying to think of a polite way to say it. He's like, well, um, you look like... You have this special lotion on your face that makes your wrinkles go away. <laughs> yeah, a special lotion called youth. So you'll find out someday. <laughs> but I stood up here and, in my sophomore year and I shared the story that when I was 18 years old, and I came down with this incredibly serious illness called meningitis. It's an infection of the brain, and literally within hours, I was in the hospital. I was in a coma. And really the first in a series of miracles that God did was to allow me to live through that night when I really should have died. But even when we got to the point where it looked like I was gonna come out of a coma and I was gonna live and I was gonna beat this infection, the doctor sat down with my parents and they said, you know, um, because of the trauma to her brain, potential brain damage, you need to get used to the fact that it's quite possible she may not be the same person when she comes out of this on the other side. And so sure enough, I came out of a coma, I beat the infection, I was released from the hospital after being there for a while, and I came home and I was different. I I couldn't read my get-well cards. I couldn't see properly. I had trouble, I struggled to just put together a coherent sentence. And so, really, the second miracle that God did there was about six weeks after I had uh, been released from the hospital. I came downstairs one day, and just like that, I-, I could talk, I could read, I could see. In fact, the doctor was just stumped because I had had this astigmatism. A lot of us have—we have prescription glasses. Have astigmatism. It's just something that can be corrected with the lens. But I'd, it's something I'd had since I was a kid, and the doctor's like, "It's." gone. I can't explain it. I'm like, it's like God was in there. He's like, well, while I'm here, I might as well just go and take care of this too. <laughs> God chose to heal me quite miraculously. And quite frankly, it's kind of humbling for me. But this is what you need to understand that as we go through these passages this week, when I see these miracle passages in scripture, These are not these lovely stories from a long time ago to me. There's so much more than that. Because healing in my life was something that, quite frankly, it was agonizingly painful. It included loss. It included desperate prayers. It was not just physical. It was spiritual. It was emotional. So, no, when I look at these passages of Scripture, these miracles from the Gospels, they're not these sweet, sanitized stories from another age. I don't read them like they're these lovely, teachable moments with a moral ending at the end. These miracles are the power of God to heal, they are the power of God to disrupt the status quo, to turn everything on its head. So, as we pour into these five miracles of Jesus, I want you to remember the power of God is alive and well today. And the power of God has the power to heal, the power to restore, the power to to reconcile, the power to renew, the power to set free, the power to change everything. Are you ready? John, in the end of his gospel, chapter 20, he says something. He says that, well, he, he, he says that Jesus performed these and many other signs so that you may believe. And so these miracles that we're going to be looking at this week, they are signs. They're these giant flashing arrows that point us to faith, that point us to Christ. So we're going to jump in. If you have your Bible, turn it to John chapter 9. We're going to read through this whole chapter this morning and actually my friend Josh Lavender is going to come up here and he's going to help me because what we're going to do this morning uh, he's going to read a little bit of scripture and then I'm going to provide commentary on it. And then he, and we're going to go back and forth like that it's going to be a little different maybe than what you're used to but I like to spice things up and so as we read through this passage I want you to pay attention because there are two things I want you to look for I want you to look for who is it That can truly see? And who is it that is spiritually blind? Because the difference between these folks is a teachable heart. And we'll come back to that.
1: As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind?
0: Okay, seriously, what kind of a question is that? Because there are these kind of ridiculous assumptions embedded in a question like that. There's the assumption that that uh, you know, blindness or any other disability for that matter could be caused by sin. There's the assumption that the sin of the parents can cause a child to be disabled or sick. There's the assumption that an embryo, in utero can somehow have the capacity to sin. And then my favorite one, there's the assumption that people who are disabled are not aware that you're talking about them. I mean, the guy, he's blind, he's not deaf, right?
1: Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Jesus Thank went you, on.
0: Thank Jesus, obviously, right? This happened
1: <laughs> so that the works of God might be displayed in him.
0: Okay, so wait a second. All right, so he didn't mess up. It's not his fault. It's not his parents' fault. It's God's fault because that's what it sounds like, right? I think sometimes we walk into these messy situations and we're asking the wrong question. We're going, who messed up? Whose fault is? Who can we blame? Who is sinned? And really maybe the better question that we could be asking is, what can God do? So what is the mess that you're staring at right now? That maybe it's staring you down. I've got one, do you have one? What is the thing that you're going, oh man, And we're so tempted to try to blame someone. Okay, whose fault is it? Who sinned? Who messed up? Where? When? How? And instead, maybe we can ask the question, God, what do you want to accomplish through this?
1: As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world.
0: So Jesus had just finished one chapter earlier in John chapter 8. He had just finished standing up and saying to everyone one of his famous seven I am statements. He said, I am the light of the world. What he's saying is that my purpose is to lead you out of spiritual darkness into spiritual light. And so right on the heels of this I am statement, he, he performs this miracle where he heals a blind man from birth. Coincidence? I don't think so.
1: After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes.
0: Okay, so this is just gross. Like, I'm just going to be real. It's awesome, but it's it's disgusting. Jesus took, literally took his saliva, he mixed it with dirt, and then he spread it on the man's face. I'd be like, no, thank you. He could have just said, be healed, right? Instead, he does this disturbingly physical thing. And I think sometimes we forget that our spiritual life is so very physical too, that we are embodied spiritual people, that we have this body to share in the divine, that we are created in his image. And if we're created in his image, then even spit is sacred. And I'm going to try to remember that the next time that my son grabs a hold of my sweet tea and leaves me nothing but backwash.
1: After saying this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that it was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man.
0: I like how everybody's talking about him. Like he's—they're like—is he the man? I don't know. Do you think he's the man? He's like, "Hello, uh, I'm the man. I'm the guy." He kind of has to insert himself into the conversation. He has to own it. I am the one that Jesus healed. And everyone's reactions here points to this propensity that we have to keep people in their assigned roles. To keep it, they want him to stay blind, they want him to stay poor because that's what's comfortable for them. I remember a friend of mine, she'd been married for probably about 10 years and you know it wasn't a perfect marriage but it seemed to be working especially when they stayed in their assigned roles until she started growing spiritually until she started realizing her self-worth and growing in her Christ confidence and, and believing that God did, in fact, love her. All of a sudden, she found herself confronting her husband when he would try to verbally abuse her or verbally abuse their children. Rather than jumping into her assigned role, trying to placate him, keep the peace, make sure he's happy, instead she stood her ground, and you know what? It sent their marriage into a tailspin. But here's the thing, when the blind man played his assigned role, everyone's happy. But as soon as he starts moving towards growth and wholeness and healing, it sends the community into a tailspin. Because they need him to stay broken. Because his healing calls out their unhealthy, codependent relationships. Sometimes, listen the resistance that you feel from people around you to your own spiritual growth and healing is because they need you to stay broken, but it makes them feel better about their own brokenness. And so listen, we have to own it. We have to be like the blind man that just goes, hey, I'm the guy, I'm the girl who God is healing.
1: But they kept asking him, How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see.
0: Notice how he leaves out how Jesus made the mud. I think he just kind of knows some people cannot handle those details, like moving along
1: here. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind.
0: Um... Okay, so can we call him something different now, please? Because he's not blind anymore, right? My son Micah, when he was born, he had jaundice, which kind of makes your skin yellow. And so he had to sit under these bilirubin lights. He had to sit under these lights for the first week. In fact, we had to come home from the hospital bringing this contraption with us so that he could be under these lights. But I'll tell you what, we don't still call him the boy born yellow, right? (laughs) Why do we struggle to see ourselves for who we are now rather than who we used to be?
1: Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep this Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet.
0: Notice how nobody has congratulated the blind man. Like, no one has invited him to take a walk along the Sea of Galilee and to take in the sights. No one's even given this guy a high five because their whole conversation is centered around themselves. Rather than celebrate God's power being revealed in this man's life, instead they're so worried about how God's power is gonna disrupt their little lives.
1: They still did not believe that the man who had been born blind had received his sight, and so they sent for the man's parents.
0: Well, that's patronizing, right? I mean, imagine, if you go to a professor and you're like, look, uh, I've had a crisis in my family. Is there any way you can give me a, an extension on this deadline? And your professor's like, hold on one second. And he dials your mom, <laughs> right? How patronizing. But I think there's something else we don't want to miss here. There is this compare contrast thing that is unfolding in this passage because this man represents physically what we are spiritually. We are all born blind. We all need this grace that goes before us, this grace that allows us to see us for who we really are and to receive the healing that he freely offers. Some people say, you heard the saying, seeing is believing, right? Seeing is believing. Well, the ironic thing in this passage is that seeing is not believing, believing is seeing.
1: Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son.
0: Okay, good.
1: And we know he was born blind. Okay. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's why his parents said he is of age. Ask him.
0: Okay, so any nominations for parent of the year here? Right? (laughs) I mean, let me get this straight. Their son is healed. He has the capacity to look them in the eye, give them eye contact for the first time in his life. He has the possibility of a future that doesn't include him sitting and begging by the side of the road. He might even be able to actually, like, take in a good sunset with them someday. And all they can do in this moment is throw him under the bus because they're afraid of being thrown out of the synagogue, i.e., country club. This is classic people-pleaser stuff here, folks. And John actually spells this one out for us just in case we're confused at all because he wants to make it clear, it was not ignorance that made these parents go, oh, we don't know, ask him. fear. John says they were afraid. They're missing out on the miracle that they've likely spent decades praying for because they're afraid of rejection. People pleasers in the room, listen up, (laughs) because we will always run the risk of missing the miracles that God has for us if we're more interested in pleasing others than pleasing God.
1: A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind.
0: So this is kind of turning in at this point into a full-on inquisition. I mean, they're calling witnesses. They're not messing around here.
1: Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner.
0: Except this time, they're not just asking questions. At this point, they are using tactics of intimidation. They are bent on getting this guy to turn on Jesus, only he won't do it.
1: He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see.
0: I love this simple confession of growing faith, like just this blossoming faith coming out of him right here.
1: Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too?
0: Zing! I love. And in case you didn't think sarcasm was biblical, there you go. Moving on.
1: Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from.
0: Oh, that's mature. So so they've gone from trying to discredit Jesus by saying, oh, he isn't the same guy. Mm, Let's ask his parents. And now they're just trying to disqualify him. Oh, we're better than you. We follow Moses. Your guy heals on the Sabbath. And so because they're trying to discredit and disqualify Jesus, really what they're trying to do is discredit the healing and then do that for Jesus too.
1: The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from yet he opened my eyes.
0: Can I just say that this guy is my hero for speaking truth to stupid? Like, I just, I love him here.
1: We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing.
0: Okay, so they have tried to discredit him. They have tried to disqualify him. And now, because everything this man is saying actually makes perfect sense, and they've tried to poke all these holes in it, and they're not able to do that, they've given up on trying to discredit him and disqualify him, and now they're just dismissing him altogether. Even though everyone has verified it, the man's like, "I'm the man." And and then the neighbors and the bystanders are like, "He's the man." And even the parents are like, "Well, yeah, that's our son." And yet still the Pharisees are like, "Nope, don't believe it." They refuse to believe.
1: To this they replied, "You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us?"
0: Translation, "We liked you better when you were blind." <laughs> But do you see what's happening here? Like there's this turning of the tables, like everything's kind of coming full circle here because the disciples started this by asking the question at the very beginning, who sinned? Whose fault is it? Right? They tried to lay blame somewhere. And yet here we are all the way at the end of the passage, and the Pharisees have missed the miracle. Their hearts are hard. They're spiritually blind, and they're still asking the same question. Whose fault is it? Who messed up? And they're trying to lay blame.
1: And they threw him out.
0: So the Pharisees have these hard hearts. But what about us? What are those calluses that are maybe just oh so subtly starting to form on our hearts? We're not talking about an honest unbelief that that asks tough questions and wrestles with doubt and tries to work it out with God. We're talking about an unbelief where God shows up in your life again and again and again and you're like, hmm, whatever, not impressed. I wonder if a sure symptom of a heart that is gaining calluses, that is hardening, is a critical spirit that, that looks at someone with that honest, desperate faith, crying out to God, and then just kind of quietly judges them. Well, that's the third time this semester since that person's gone up to the altar. Or and that, that display of emotion and worship, it's just kind of embarrassing. Or, or they always over-spiritualize everything. Or, because the Pharisees, they were embarrassed by the blind man. They were disgusted by the blind man. They were judging the blind man. And underneath all of it, they were really convicted by the blind man, right? So they threw him out. Paul says in Romans 1.18 that the wrath of God is being revealed to those who suppress the truth with their wickedness. And I hear the word "suppress," and I think of this beach ball that, kind of, no matter how many times you suppress it, no matter how many times you try to push it under the water, it just keeps bouncing right back up. And how many times doesn't matter how many times we ignore or try to suppress the truth of God, it will keep showing up in our lives. The question is, are we tempted to be like the Pharisees, where they try to suppress God's truth, because? God's truth will always reveal who we really are. And the truth is we're really like the blind man, right? And so it's easier to say, oh, I don't want to be humiliated or, or embarrassing or, or what, all that. And so it's easier to just hang on to our pride and say, well, I'm not like this guy over here.
1: Jesus heard that they had thrown him out and he found him.
0: Jesus found him. He hunted him down. He went after him. Because that's what Jesus does, right? He goes after us. He's sitting at the table with the outcasts. He's in the refugee camp. He's on the other side of the tracks. He goes after those who've been rejected by the folks who love power more than people.
1: He said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him.
0: So all the way through this passage, we've been watching this progression of spiritual sight in this man. Where, you know, kind of at first, it's just kind of happening in bits and pieces, like, oh yeah, he healed me, yes, I believe, but he's not totally clear yet on who Jesus is. And then there's this moment of clarity for him. And I find it interesting because we don't really get his reaction when his eyes are opened for the first time when he sees light and color for the first time John doesn't tell us I don't know if it was unremarkable or 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 what but we don't know but John does tell us what his response was when the eyes of his heart were open for the first time it says he worshiped him
1: Jesus said for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too?
0: Yeah, Jesus, I mean, we're not blind, right? We're we're the ones who see everything. We're the enlightened ones. We're the ones who know all the answers. Everybody comes to us with their questions, and we kind of like it that way.
1: Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains.
0: I love how there is this compare contrast thing we've been talking about in this passage, right? All the way through. We've been watching it slowly unfold, slowly unfold. Because at the beginning of the passage, track with me here, who is it that is blind? You can tell me. The man. And at the beginning of the passage, who is it that can see? The Pharisees have their sight. But This crazy thing happens as the story unfolds, as Jesus reveals more and more of who he is, and as he reveals more and more of what is in our hearts, all of a sudden, at the end of the passage, who is it that has spiritual sight? The man. And who is it that is spiritually blind? Yeah, and so there is this crazy reversal of roles that no one saw coming and it feels surprising because all of a sudden the people who you thought could see are actually blind and the people who you thought were blind are the ones who actually get it. And the only difference, the only difference between the Pharisees and the disciples or the the man born blind is a teachable heart a teachable heart. Scientists tell us that there is more to seeing physically than a functioning organ. with modern science now, you can actually take someone who's been born blind, you can give them a cornea transplant, and you can give them the gift of sight for the very first time. But what the medical community has learned is that it takes more than a surgeon, to help someone see because some of these patients will wake up from surgery and, and they don't have the capacity to understand the light that's coming in their eyes. Their, their brains don't have the pathways set up to interpret what it is they're seeing. And so you'll have patients who will say even after the surgery, I'm still blind, I can't see a thing. Because here's the thing, it takes more than a working organ. It takes an ability to learn something new. It takes a teachable heart. A humility to start all over again. And that is the beauty of the gospel because if we have a teachable heart that says, yes, I was born blind and yes, I'm willing to start all over again. And yes, God can do something new even in me. And yes, I need more of God. And yes, I have everything to learn. If we can have that kind of a teachable heart, God can do it in your heart, in my heart. So as the band comes out, I wanna leave you with two questions. And I just, I just want to pray for you, okay? So where is your heart growing calluses? Maybe it's oh so subtle, but it's growing these calluses. And where do you see yourself tempted to suppress God's truth in your life? Let me pray. God, hard hearts grow so quietly, so subtly until... We just don't even see the opportunities for your glory to be displayed anymore, that we care more about pleasing people than pleasing you. We're disgusted with people like the blind man and their naive faith, and we end up missing the miracles happening. We don't want to miss the miracles. So God, give us teachable hearts, hearts like the blind man, hearts that are hungry for more of you, hearts that stand up for truth, hearts that fall down and worship you. God, give us a heart that is soft and responsive to your spirit. In your name.